Lord, we know two things to be true this morning. We know that uh, in your word we find absolute truth that can save us, that can give us new life in Christ. And yet we also know that we have a tendency to put into Scripture what we want to be there. We have a tendency to manipulate Scripture so that it legitimizes our desires and our wants and our lifestyles. And so I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to those temptations, that you would guard against that through your Holy Spirit, and that you would guide us into all truth. What we do not know, teach us. Uh, What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So I was watching the news uh, this last week, and I found out something that was very concerning. It turns out, apparently, we are coming out of a global pandemic. Um, Have you heard about this? I had no idea, and uh, I was shocked, as I'm sure you're shocked hearing it from me right now. Um, based on your awkward silence. And so, uh, obviously, I'm kidding. All of us know what has been going on the last year and a half. We've all felt the effects of it in many different ways. If you're in the medical field, if you're a doctor or a nurse or in administration, whatever, you've probably felt it the most out of anyone that's, uh, that's here today. And we also, we thank you for the way that you have served our community faithfully. But even beyond just the medical industry, another industry that's kind of felt the the burden and the strain, the the long-lasting effects of this pandemic is our supply chains across the world. And I was actually reading an article just uh, a few days ago that was talking about this particular issue as it's uh, relating to Black Friday sales, which are going to be coming up here in a, in a few weeks. And the article, or the writer of the article was predicting that uh, during Black Friday this year, there's not going to be a competition between stores related to price. Stores are not going to be concerned about, we got the lowest price, we got the best deal. Instead, competition between stores is going to be based on availability, having the products in stock at all, and actually being able to get them to you quickly. And maybe some of you have already actually experienced some of these shortages or the effects of uh, the supply chain kind of being slowed down or being bogged down during this pandemic. Maybe you've ordered an appliance and, uh, you know, you're waiting for months and months and months for that appliance to actually show up. Maybe you are in the market for a new vehicle and suddenly the, the car that you wanted is no longer available because of the infamous chip shortage. I'm sure all of us have felt on some level the effects of this particular issue in our society. Just anecdotally, um, I ordered a woodworking machine at the beginning of this year. And in January, when I was talking to the, the company, uh, they gave me a quote, you know, here's how much it's going to cost. Uh, if you place the order soon, you know, it should take about four months or so to, to actually ship out and arrive at, uh, at your home. So all you have to do in order to confirm this order, they said, all you have to do is put a 10% deposit down and we'll get that order going which is exactly what I did, of course. I'm very excited about it. I'm waiting in anticipation for that day. Now, unfortunately, immediately, uh, when I 
ordered that machine, actually not immediately, a week, about a week after I ordered that machine, I received another email from the company that said, you know, thank you so much for your order. Uh, We appreciate your business. Your machine should arrive in uh, mid-November of 2021. Okay, so more than twice the amount of time they had originally estimated, which should be illegal. And I'd be lying if I said that I did not respond to that news with a little bit of frustration and some disappointment. Uh, And the question that kept running through my mind when I heard about this was how disorganized, how out of touch do you have to be as a company with your own logistics and your own process in order to actually estimate something and then add seven more months onto the estimation after the order. Like really, how insane is that? But one question that I never asked, in fact, one question that never even crossed my mind in all of this was, will I ever actually even get my machine? And the reason that that never crossed my mind, the reason that that question was never even asked was because... I put a deposit down. Now, maybe this is foolish thinking, but to me, that deposit guarantees my place in line. It obligates that company to fulfill their end of the contract. I have put earnest money down, right? I put a down payment down on that machine, which means that it guarantees that at some point, No matter how long that takes, but at some point, I'm going to receive what was promised to me. Now, here's why I say all that, not just to vent. And by the way, thank you for listening. Um, It's really therapeutic for me. The reason that I say all that is because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34, tells us that Christ's resurrection is a deposit on an order that is to be delivered. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, there are promises that have been guaranteed to us by God. And no matter how long it takes, we can know, we can live knowing that those promises will be fulfilled one day. Now, before we actually get into what those promises are, I actually really just quickly want to give you an overview of this chapter, because if you're a member and if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've been, first of all, we've been going through 1 Corinthians over like the last decade or whatever. I don't even know how long it's been. Um, what is time? And, uh, but we've actually taken a break from that for three weeks here, and we've been talking about eschatology and the end times and the millennium. So before we got into that, we were actually, uh, we were in 1 Corinthians 15. We went over verses 1 through 11. And just as a refresher, in those first 11 verses, Paul is defending the historical reality of the resurrection. And he's doing that by recounting all of the different people that saw Jesus post-resurrection. And he includes himself in that list. So now Paul moves from the reality of the resurrection, the fact that it happened, that it is central to the Christian faith, that it's foundational to the gospel. He moves from the reality of the resurrection now to the implications of the resurrection in the remainder of this passage. In other words, Paul is essentially building an argument here, excuse me, for the Corinthians. Christ's resurrection 
really happened. Here's how we know it happened. And because it happened, here are the implications. If A, then B, then C. This is very kind of classic Pauline writing. He loves to present a good argument. He loves to reason with you and explain to you why you should believe what he's calling you to believe. But Paul is also in chapter 15. He's not just creating an argument here. He's providing really an entire framework for us to understand redemptive history. And he's saying that all of redemptive history is built on or rests on the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection in the middle of history undoes what happened at the beginning of history, and it is going to lead to the consummation of all things at the end of history. That is... In summary, what Paul is getting at in this whole chapter. So this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is an eschatological chapter. It is meant to to point us forward towards that age to come, towards that eschatological age, which is why we've focused on that topic at all over the last several weeks. That was not done by accident. Everything that, that we've talked about and will talk about related to the last days depends on the resurrection according to Paul. And so our hope is that as we kind of pull away from 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment, and we've talked about some of these things like the millennium and the age to come, it is not to actually take a break from 1 Corinthians 15. It is to actually prepare us to better engage with 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection, Tim Keller says, the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. And so to understand what's happening in this world, to understand what's going to happen in this world, we have to understand the resurrection. And that's why Paul is going to talk about it in every single sentence, basically, every single verse, every single paragraph of this chapter. And so with that in mind, let's look at verses 12 through 34 to see what exactly hinges on the resurrection. Now, in most of our Bibles, when we look at this, it's probably split up into three sections or three paragraphs. And so going back to this idea of uh, a deposit, we'll see that Christ's resurrection promises or guarantees three things. We have one promise in each of these sections, and that's how we'll kind of uh, break it out this morning. So in the first section, verses 12 through 19, we see that Christ's resurrection promises our spiritual resurrection. Christ's resurrection promises our spiritual resurrection. At the beginning of this section in verse 12, Paul makes it clear that the concept that's being challenged by the Corinthians isn't actually life after death. They were not, they were not against the idea of there being some kind of existence beyond this life. That's not the argument that, that Paul is trying to interact with. What is being interacted with is this idea that there is not a bodily resurrection after this life, at least not for believers, And in response to that challenge, Paul argues that without a resurrection of believers, you you actually don't even have a resurrection of Christ. And if there's no resurrection of Christ, who, who did rise bodily, right? If there's no resurrection of Christ, then all of Christianity, he's going to say, is at best a complete waste of time 
And at worst, it's a lie that when you believe in it, when you live as though it's true, it actually is going to seal your soul for eternal condemnation. That's what's on the line here, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And here's why I say that. In verses 16 and 17, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here's the key. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, the resurrection, and that's both Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection, is a gospel issue. Jesus' death by itself does not actually offer any kind of reconciliation between us and God. On the cross, Jesus absolutely paid the penalty for sin, but it was actually through the resurrection that he conquers the power of sin, that it has no bearing anymore in our lives through the resurrection. And when we believe in him as our savior, the victory that he secured over death, over sin, is extended to us right now. That's what Paul is arguing here. In other words, God has not left his people unchanged and unaffected, anticipating Christ's return before any kind of redemptive action, before any kind of redemptive plan actually uh, is underway in our lives. If you are in Christ, his resurrection is being realized in your life here and now. As sin is being put to death day by day, and you and I are being made alive in Jesus Christ. That's what we just sang about, right? Uh, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. And even more, Paul's going to say, there's going to come a day when the power that's already at work within us will be brought to completion. And not only will the power of sin be defeated, but even the presence of sin is going to go away. How do we know that's going to happen? Well, we know it's going to happen because of the resurrection. And just as Christ has been raised, so also we are being raised out of the death of sin and into new life. On the day of judgment, all of us are going to have a life full of sin that is behind us. And we're going to have a holy and a righteous and a just God standing before us. And we're going to have to give account of what happened back there in that life. And the only hope that we have, the only sure ground that there is to stand on, the only confidence we will have is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered the grave and his resurrection promises. It guarantees our spiritual resurrection when we believe in him. Now, I would guess that most, if not all of us, are on board with this idea up to this point. Most, if not all of us, understand that Christ's physical resurrection in some capacity, in some way, on some level, has a spiritually transformative kind of uh, effect in our lives, that it has this power to actually declare us righteous. That's not really uh, a, a very controversial idea within Christendom, I don't think. 
But Paul is going to go a step further than that, actually, in verses 20 through 28. So going into that next section now. And he's going to say also that Christ's resurrection uh, promises not just a spiritual resurrection, but Christ's resurrection promises our physical resurrection. In other words, the life that we experience after death is not ultimately some kind of uh, metaphysical, immaterial, disembodied existence where our souls just kind of like float around in, in the sky or, or in the atmosphere or anything like that. Eternity to Paul is an embodied eternity. The completion of God's plan involves not just a, uh, a spiritual renewal, it involves also a physical renewal. There's going to be a physical component to the resurrection, to the age to come. And we know that to be the case because of Paul's wording in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you're into farming or you have a farming background or you're into gardening, you have a gardening background, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this idea of first fruits, this term that Paul uses here to describe Christ's resurrection. But even if you're not, you can probably just from the context of the passage or the context of the word itself, understand kind of what he's getting at or what this word means. You know that as plants kind of begin to ripen, of course, the hope is that they produce something, whether that's just a, a flower to, to look at and, you know, to admire and to smell or whatever, to, to cut off and give to someone, or, or even to, to consume. If you're in agriculture, you know, you want, you want your plants to actually grow something that you can uh, later use and eat, whether that's fruit or corn or grain, <clears throat> and to confirm how good the yield will be at, far, uh, at harvest. A farmer will go and, and he'll pick and examine those plants that are uh, kind of the first to produce something early on in the season. And he's doing that in order to determine the health of the crop overall. If you have healthy first fruits, then you're probably going to have a really healthy harvest at the end of the season. So these first fruits act as a representative or, or a sign or a sample that would indicate what is to come. And just like a farmer can look at the first fruits uh, of the produce to be harvested from his field, the Christian can look to Christ as our representative, as our first fruits, as that sample, and know that we too will experience a physical resurrection in which death is truly and finally put to death. It's defeated once and for all. When does that happen though? That is, of course, the question that's always uh, being thrown out there in any kind of these eschatology discussions and conversations uh, or debates. And it's the question that Paul is going to answer for us in verses 23 through 28. In these next few verses, Paul isn't going to necessarily give us a chronology. So he's not going to, he's not going to talk about specific days. He's not going to give years. He's not going to give spans of time in which all of these things happen. But he is going to give what I would call a progression or a sequence of order or an order of operations. Now, I couldn't let Chris 
have all the fun over these last couple weeks. And so I made a graph. Um, now, unlike Chris's graphs, my graph is actually going to provide more clarity and not confusion. But, um, but before I get into any of that, let me just review actually all the events and the moments that Paul's about to mention at all. He's going to bring up in this uh, passage that, that we're just familiar with them. We're familiar with all of these things going on before we even try to figure out what, what order is everything happening in. I'm actually just going to uh, list these things in the order that Paul mentions them, okay? So first, Christ is resurrected. Second, Christ returns. Third, Paul says, those who belong to Christ are resurrected. Fourth, Christ delivers the kingdom back to God the Father. Fifth, Christ destroys all of his enemies. Sixth, Christ reigns before destroying all his enemies. Seventh, Christ destroys death. Eighth, God puts all things under his dominion. Now you can probably already start to pick up on just when you hear these things listed or you read the passage, the way that Paul is listing these on the front end is actually not necessarily in sequential order. He's listing certain things at different times. He's repeating himself at certain points and using different language to refer to the same thing. He's saying one thing will happen before something, but he lists that actually before the something that's going to happen. And so we have to read Paul's words carefully in order to understand what he's saying will happen and when. And so with that in mind, here's how I've broken down the progression of these events as they're described in verses 23 through 28. First, Christ is resurrected as the first fruits of our resurrection. Okay, we see that in verse 23. It's, it, it literally says, you know, Jesus is going to be the first fruits. That's already happened. Second, though, I would argue that after Christ's resurrection, Christ now reigns, according to verse 25. It says that he will reign while he waits to destroy his enemies. So again, I'd argue that this reign is happening right now because we know, in fact, that Christ has not destroyed all of his enemies, right? There's still physical death, for example, which we know is at least an enemy of God. And so uh, verses 25 and 26 indicate that Christ's reign is leading up to that defeat. It's not coming after it. We are waiting for that day when Christ uh, will defeat death. But until that day, Paul says, Christ reigns. Third, Christ returns. Believers are resurrected. And as a result, death is defeated. So I'm bringing all three of those things into kind of one eschatological moment Okay, the reason that I'm doing that, one is the way that Paul words these things. He's, especially on the front end of this passage, talking about this will happen, then this, then this. So it does seem like it happens in that order. But even just logically, if we're waiting for Christ to defeat death, it seems the way that he will defeat death is through the resurrection. And we know that the resurrection is going to come at his coming. That's what Paul says. At his coming, then those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. And so all of those things I'm kind of bundling together. Fourth and finally then, because Christ has defeated his final enemy death, it then says that now that it's defeated, Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father. 
We know that Christ's uh, handing over of the kingdom will be the last event because in this sequence that Paul gives us, verse 24 describes it as the end. It's the final thing to happen in this kind of redemptive plan that God is unfolding first in Christ, then in us, and then in everything. And so until the end comes, verse 25 again says that Christ will reign, which again, I'd argue is happening right now. Now, you may disagree with everything that I've said. The, gra- the graph could have been in vain, okay? And, and that's okay. That's fine. You can be wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's okay if, if you disagree with me in some of these things. There are a lot of factors to consider in this passage. We just went over really, really fast, but there's a lot to consider in this passage and things that we don't even have time to get to. Uh, and I don't think that Paul is giving an exhaustive timeline of uh, God's redemptive plan anyways. So there are things that are being left out. There are things that he's not even bringing up that will happen. But no matter what your view is, one thing that is clear from this passage Death is an enemy of God. And if you believe that God wins in the end, if you believe that God will be victorious in the end, you have to believe in a bodily resurrection of both Christ and believers. Again, God's redemptive plan is not just about defeating kind of these, the spiritual enemy of sin. It is not just a spiritual reality. It's about defeating the physical enemy of death, Paul says. And the way in which God will claim victory over that last enemy is through a physical resurrection. That's what's to come. And we know that because Christ's resurrection promises or guarantees it is the deposit on those things to come. It's a deposit on a physical resurrection. Well, not only does Christ's resurrection promise us a spiritual resurrection and a physical resurrection, but then third and finally, it promises us purposeful living. It promises purposeful living. So Paul opens up this last section now, verses uh, 29 through 34, with a very interesting statement regarding uh, baptisms on behalf of the dead. And before I even attempt to talk about this, uh, first I want to say this is literally one of the most difficult, most confusing passages in all of the Bible. I'm not just saying that because I think it. I'm saying that because commentators, brilliant minds are saying it. Guys who are way smarter than me are saying, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities here. There's a lot of vagueness going on. It's not clear the context that Paul is speaking to here. It's not uh, clear, is he, is he for it just by mentioning it? Is he bringing it up simply as an example? How are we supposed to understand this? And then second, the thing that I want to understand, or the second thing that I want you to understand, us to understand, is that With any difficult passage, including this one, a wise approach is to interpret those difficult passages in light of less difficult and clearer passages. Not everyone does that. Mormons, for example, will read this passage and say, yes, 
we need to be baptizing. If we're alive right now, we need to be baptizing people who are, uh, who are no longer with us. We need to be baptizing uh, living people on behalf of those that are dead. And that will have some kind of spiritual significance to it, some kind of eternal security that's, that's kind of bound to that person now because of what we've done on earth. And so with that in mind, with the, uh, the, the, the reality that this is a super difficult passage to understand, the reality that we need to understand it in light of clearer, less difficult passages, let me offer to you exactly what this passage is saying. Um, I'm just kidding. This is what I think it might be saying. And there's literally probably like eight to 10 decent arguments that could be made as alternatives to this. I think the best explanation of this verse is that a small sect of Corinthian Christians, or at least people that were in the church at Corinth, were potentially baptizing each other as representatives for those who had already died. And they were doing that thinking that it would provide some kind of spiritual benefit to those dead people in the afterlife. I think that's the, the most straightforward, the simplest way to understand this passage. And so that's why I've kind of landed in that particular camp. If that is what is happening, if that is what Paul is talking about, I don't believe that he's supporting it. He doesn't encourage the practice in the passage. He never tells us, and that's good, and that's right, and you should do it, and you should do it more, and you should keep on doing it. We all need to do it. He doesn't say that. And we know from Paul's other writings that baptism cannot save a person, nor can someone's religious acts have some kind of uh, spiritual imputed effect on an, uh, another person in this life or the life to come. We know that from what Paul has already written what he's going to write after he's written to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians 15. But whatever practice Paul is referencing or uh, speaking into in verse 29, what is clear is his conclusion, which is that any kind of physical act that is given spiritual significance, like baptism, you could even put something like the Lord's Supper in here, anything like that makes no sense apart from the resurrection. If a bodily resurrection will never happen, then there's no reason to merge the physical and the spiritual, since the spiritual is the only thing that's actually going to ever last. If what we're experiencing physically in this life is, is really just, I mean, it's temporary, it's kind of a, a, a pit stop onto eternity, if that's all true, then why would you do anything physical and attach something spiritual to it. If you, if you don't believe in a bodily resurrection, then you're really only left with two options as it relates to understanding the physical dimension of this life and of this world. The first is nihilism, which is essentially that anything in this world doesn't actually matter because it's all just going to be going away right? Why would you invest any time, any significance into any of it if it's not going to last? The other option is hedonism. Everything physical in this world matters only to the extent that it actually gives me any pleasure. 
If, if all of this is going to go away, then I need to enjoy it. I need to get as much pleasure out of it as possible while I still can. And so that's why Paul wraps up this whole passage by quoting this kind of mantra that's going around. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There can't be any ultimate or meaningful purpose to this life without a resurrection. There is no reason to fight against the murder of infants in this life. There is no reason to fight for your marriage in this life. There is no reason to care for the poor in this life. There's no reason to protect the abused and the disenfranchised in this life. There's no reason to come into this room this morning with your family and sing songs and listen to the word being preached unless the resurrection is true. There's no reason to do any of these things that, that have some kind of spiritual significance in a physical world if the physical world is really just all going to melt away and it will never come to be again. It's only in Christ that we can confidently say that what happens in this life bears any kind of significance. He's brought significance to it. First, first of all, through the fact that he's actually taken on human flesh in his birth, in his earthly birth, when he came uh, to this world, he took on flesh. And not only that, even when he was raised, he had a glorified body, a glorified flesh. And so this life matters. Our bodies matter. The physical world matters. And nowhere will that be proven more true than at the resurrection, when the physical does not actually go away. It simply becomes more complete, more real, more beautiful, more fulfilling. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about that, about that particular thing. There's a lot of implications that come just out of that. But for the sake of time, what I'd like to do now is just really leave you with three points of application. Since Christ has been resurrected... Those of us who are in Christ need to be certain kinds of people in light of the resurrection. So first, we need to be holy. We need to be holy. In verse 17, Paul says that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins, which means that if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we are actually free from those sins. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is an eschatological passage. And I think because that's the case, we could argue then that the battle against sin is an eschatological battle. Just like Christ's resurrection is a sign of things to come, what we desire and what we think and what we do in our lives is supposed to be a sign of things to come. It's supposed to point forward toward a future day, a future reality. One day, Jesus is going to make all things new. He's going to claim the final victory over his enemies, even sin and death. And he's starting that process right here, right now with you and with me. Sin should not conquer our hearts if Jesus has conquered the grave. That's what Paul is saying. 
And that's why he finishes this passage the way that he does. He says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But he immediately follows that mantra and that passage with this. He says, do not be deceived. Don't believe that lie. Don't don't be consumed by that false reality that's being preached out there in the world. Don't be consumed by that. You'll get nowhere with that. Wake up from your drunken stupor and don't go on sinning. That's his point. In other words, sin is a short-sighted game. If there's a resurrection, then there is a life after this one. There is a reckoning after this one. There is an accountability to God that all of us will have one day. It's not that Paul is promoting some kind of uh, uh, moralism or legalism as though uh, we need to kind of clean up our act because, listen, there's a day where God is going to come and he's going to judge us. It's not like we're, we're this teenager who has to get the house all cleaned up because they threw a party and now their parents are coming back and they don't want them to find out about anything that they did. Instead, what Paul is saying is that because there's a resurrection, we need to live today in light of tomorrow. The kingdom that Christ is inaugurating is a holy kingdom. And if we're citizens of it, then let's be holy. Let's live as though we are members of that kingdom. Let's live as though Christ is alive and active, working in our hearts and our minds and our lives and is using us then to work in this world and expand his kingdom until one day he's going to return and consummate all things. Be holy. Second, since Christ has been resurrected, don't just be holy, but friends, be encouraged. Be encouraged. One thing that caught my uh, attention this past week as I was studying this passage was verse 25. Paul says here that Jesus is reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The reason that that kind of caught my attention or... uh, you know, kind of, kind of grabbed me, pulled me in as I was asking myself, how is it that Christ can reign if he hasn't yet actually subdued his enemies? Isn't that what it actually just practically means to reign? Don't you, don't you have authority over something? Don't you reign over something only after you have already subdued it? How could, I, how could I be a king over people who I have not actually subdued and brought underneath my authority? How could I do that? And as I was asking myself that question in relation to this passage, after thinking about it, the conclusion that I came to is that Jesus already has subdued his enemies. And maybe the effects of that have not been fully realized, right? There is a reason why all of us are facing this very real reality of physical death in this life. Death has not been fully defeated yet, but death has shown itself completely ineffective against the power and the plans of God. The enemy has already been defeated, Jesus is already victorious, which means that there's nothing in this life that we have to fear if we are in Christ. 
none of that will have the final word because Jesus reigns over all of it. And he's proven that he reigns over it. He's proven his authority through his resurrection. And so we can live as though that's true. And not only that, but as we've already read today, Christ's resurrection is just the first fruits or the sample of what's to come. So as amazing as it is that Jesus has literally risen from the dead and how central that is, as we've already talked about, how central that is to the whole Christian uh, message and story and faith, there's another day coming where what was put into motion on that day will be brought to completion and it's going to be physical and it's going to be visible, it's going to be tangible, it's going to be miraculous. Which means that whatever pain or trial that we're experiencing in this life is temporary. The disease, the disability, the suffering that seeks to pull our attention in and convince us that we are being defeated is a lie. Because Jesus has risen from the grave. He's already conquered it. It's already true. And so for the Christian, all of our pain today is temporary. And all of our pleasure tomorrow is permanent. And and do not, friends, do not take that for granted. Because unbelievers do not have that promise. It is the exact opposite for them. Without Christ, all of your pleasure is temporary today and all of your pain is permanent tomorrow. Before the Christian, there is no diagnosis that is final. There is no hurt that is final. There's no pain that is final. Jesus has already shown us that he's defeated all those things. And we'll get to share in that victory together with him one day. And so be encouraged. This body with with all its shortcomings, all its afflictions, all of the suffering that we can experience is not all that there is. There's a day of resurrection coming where it will all be made new. Third and finally, then since Christ has been resurrected, don't just be holy, don't just be encouraged, but friends, be bold. We need to be bold. Now, what I am about to say is a sweeping statement. Because I've acknowledged it, you cannot get mad at me. I understand that there are exceptions to this. But I would argue that the problem facing Christians in this country, and even more specifically, facing Christians in Hamilton County, so now I'm talking about you and me, just in case there was any lack of clarity, The problem that we face as Christians today is not an over-realized eschatology where we completely separate ourselves from this world in anticipation for Christ's return. The problem more often is an under-realized eschatology where we sell ourselves to this world and become apathetic to Christ's return. 
To paraphrase a commentary that I was reading last week, it's, it's not that we become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. It's that we become so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. Some of us, despite what we know to be true and even what we say we believe to be true, we are living as though this is all that there is. And so I have to, I have to put my eggs all in this basket and whatever, whatever can happen in this life, it needs to happen. I gotta get it all in. This is the final experience. This is the end of the story. And a way to, to know if, if that's you is just to ask yourself, am I protecting my life or am I stewarding my life? Do I see my existence as ultimate and therefore something that I need to protect at all costs? Or rather, is my life temporary and therefore it's something that needs to be invested into an eternal purpose or an internal enterprise. Paul's answer to that question is clear. He says, I die every day. Now this can mean, this can mean something metaphorical. He dies to himself. He dies to his own will every day, but whatever he means, whether it's literal or metaphorical, it certainly has a literal component. He's certainly facing death every single day because of his allegiance to Christ. Why would Paul intentionally, proactively put himself in what most of us would agree are miserable conditions? The answer is, he says, resurrection. Resurrection, that's it. That's how I can do what I do because I know that there's a day coming where all of this will not be final. There's a day coming that is going to be greater where everything that I wanted in this life is going to come true. All of my deepest needs, all of my deepest desires are going to be met in Jesus. I don't have to get it all in now. I can steward my life freely and graciously and patiently as I await and anticipate that day where God's going to do what I wanted him to do, what I was looking for him to do all along. If God is redeeming all things and he's bringing all things under him through the resurrection, then that includes our bodies and that means our bodies are his what we do with our bodies should ultimately seek to glorify and honor him, not seek our own self-interest and our own protection. And when we are freed from the burden of thinking, we have to make the most of this life because it's all that there is. It's all that we have. We've got to make the most of it. When we're freed from that, it allows us to live in an incredibly bold, in an incredibly purposeful way. If the resurrection is true, if Christ has been raised, and if we will be raised one day, then death does not have the final word. And Paul's conclusion is that not only can we live as though that's true, but even more than that, we can die as though that's true. We can die in comfort knowing that that is not going to be the end. We will be raised from the dead one day. And so what greater joy can there be in this life than to live in a way which reflects the eternal glory that's to come? And so friends, let's be bold. Not, 
not protecting our lives as though uh, they were ultimate, as though it's the final word or the final thing, but giving them fully to Christ for his purpose, for his glory, for his plan. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the resurrection. We thank you that you do not uh, leave us wondering, leave us uh, questioning what will happen one day, what is there to anticipate, what is there to look forward to. But Lord, you show it to us in Christ's resurrection, in his conquering of the grave, and you give us hope because of that. And so I pray that we would live today in light of tomorrow, that because the resurrection is true, because Christ has conquered the grave, that we would be holy, that we'd fight against sin actively, that we'd be a sign of things to come, that we would be encouraged knowing that death does not have the final word and that we would be bold, not protecting our lives, but stewarding it for your plans and purposes. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.